You can turn once again in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 this morning we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Uh, and our focus will be verses 4 through 8. Uh, not, verse, not ending at verse 7 as it says in your bulletin, but we'll be ending at verse 8. Just a, an amazing passage of scripture, one that has much riches in store for us in it. Uh, why don't we stand up together as we uh, read God's word? God's holy word from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. May the Lord richly bless the hearing, receiving, and preaching of his holy word. You may be seated. We've been looking over these past few weeks at uh, the life of practical godliness that God calls his people to live. We saw in Titus chapter 2 how God tailors his instructions on godly living to various demographic groups. To older men and women, younger men and women, slave and free. Because there are particular trials and, uh, and temptations for us in our particular stations of life. Uh, we saw last Sunday evening how God calls us all to be submissive to authorities and to live with a godly Christian character in our civic interactions. We're called to be godly citizens. And from this now, Paul is working to tell Titus to remind the church of what is the basis of all this sort of behavior. Because the question becomes, as we look at this high bar of life that we're supposed to live up to, this mighty call of God for Christian behavior... Uh, the question actually comes, what motivates this sort of behavior? What is a strong enough motivating compulsion that would actually propel us into this sort of life? Because if you recognize, like I do, that we are all naturally prone to a significant amount of pride and selfishness. We recognize that this is kind of our natural state, like an object at rest stays at rest. Our natural state of rest is one of pride and selfishness. And so we wonder, what is going to be that sort of fuel that can give us that energy to move us into the life that God would have us to? Well, we have beautifully here today one power-packed gospel sentence. Verses 4 to 7 of Titus chapter 3 
is one sentence that has in it so much power, so much truth, that's more than enough to power a life of Christian obedience. It's like a, uh, a gospel nuclear reactor in this one sentence. So much power. And uh, if you know anything about how nuclear uh, power plants work, um, if you don't, you can ask Mr. McMaster. But what they do is they, is they split atoms apart. And it's by the process of splitting these atoms, you release just so much energy. And in this nuclear sentence, there is so much energy that we, as we pull apart each phrase, as we look at just the depths of each part of this gospel sentence, there is so much spiritual energy in life, enough to motivate us our entire life long if we will give our attention to reflecting on it all our days. And the reason why we're given this gospel-motivating power, we're told at the end in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, Paul says. This gospel sentence, it's a trustworthy one. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul sees a connection between the gospel and good works. And he wants Titus, he says, to insist on these things. He wants these gospel truths to be repeated in the ears of the people of God until they are embedded in their hearts. He wants them to insist on them so that the people of God may be carefully devoted to a life of good works. A life, as we've been seeing in the, these previous weeks, that's the beautiful life, the good life. A life that adorns the gospel and makes God look good. But not just a life that is beautiful, but a life that, as we're told, is profitable for people. A life that actually makes a difference in this world. Wouldn't you love that to be true of you, that when your time comes and you depart this earth, that you would leave knowing that this world, this humanity, has a net benefit, a net profit, because you lived we want to live this life that's motivated by the gospel. And we recognize again that our lives are often pretty poor reflections of the goodness and grace of God our Savior. We don't often do what Christ commanded us in letting our light shine before men. That they may see our good works and glorify God in heaven. Uh, we often glow really dimly. Uh, if you think of things that glow, I don't know how many of you guys as a kid had like those glow-in-the-dark stars on your ceiling. I definitely had those glow-in-the-dark stars. And really, the, any glow-in-the-dark object, how do you make it glow? Well, it glows best when you take the glow-in-the-dark object and you hold it up to light. And the brighter the light, the closer you hold it up, the longer you hold it up, the more brightly it glows when it's back in the darkness. And that's what meditating on the gospel is for us. It's coming close, coming close to Jesus to look at the brightness of the glory of his face and his grace. And as we look and behold, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4 that as we behold his glory, we're transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. That is, our beholding leads to our becoming. As we receive these truths, we become people who reflect these truths. We receive them and reflect them before a watching world. And so our witness before the world is intimately tied to our perception of gospel realities. 
as we look in this gospel sentence, this power-packed sentence, I want us to notice three character traits of God that come through in all this description of God's works. That is, God's goodness, his graciousness, and his generosity. These are the character traits of God we're called to reflect, and we see in his work. These three grand qualities are on display in salvation, and we're going to investigate these to try to split them apart. And so we're going to see, um, you could even follow along in the outline of your bulletin, it breaks this down for you, but we see what God has done for us in salvation. Then Paul tells us why God's done this work of salvation. Then how he's gone about this work of salvation. And finally, to what end God has saved us. So let's begin by looking at what God has done for us in Christ. Take a look at verse 4. We're told, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. The three words at the core of this whole sentence. This is the primary verb around which everything else in the sentence hinges. That he saved us. Three words with an an eternity of truth embedded in them. And this says that God's salvation accomplished in Christ was the greatest exhibit of his goodness, or that could be translated kindness, and his loving kindness towards humanity. And this great goodness and love of God, it appeared not only when Christ appeared, but it says it appeared to us. That is, the goodness and love of God in salvation appears every time the good news of Christ, the gospel message is proclaimed. And so it comes into our very ears like an appearing, a revelation of God's kindness and his loving kindness. And it's interesting, this word here for loving kindness, it's one Greek word, and it's only used twice in the New Testament, and it literally means love for humanity, love for people. Uh, in Greek, it's uh, philanthropos, which you might recognize the word philanthropy. It's, it's a generous desire to give to others. And now that, that, that word's come to have more financial connotations to us, and maybe a better term is altruism. I don't think we talk about altruism enough in the church. Uh, and what altruism is, is a, it's the practice of selfless concern for the well-being of others. And this is the kind of idea that God in salvation exhibits, a concern for the well-being of the people he's created. And therefore, I, I like one translation that defines this as generous love. It's the sort of love that gives to others, that reaches out to others. He saved us. And what it means that Christ saved us, to be saved Uh, We think of it so spiritually, but it just simply means to be rescued, to be delivered from something, from some evil, from some penalty, from some suffering. And what we're saved from as Christians is we're talking about being saved from sin. Sin is what we are saved from. Jesus was given that name because we're told he would save his people from their sins. And why is this good news? This is good news because sin is the greatest barrier to living the good life God would have us. Sin is really the only thing that keeps us from fully enjoying the goodness of God in all things and delighting to give him glory in our lives. Sin is a terrible barrier to a life that experiences and enjoys goodness. And before we were saved, we were totally mired in sin, stuck and trapped, as we were told in verse 3, 
We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, wandering off, enslaved, it says, to our passions and pleasures, just living after the flesh, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And we deserved to be left in this state. We deserved to be stuck in the mire of sin. But the beautiful truth is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to save his people from their sins, and to display the kindness and generous love of God. How does Christ's salvation display for us uh, the goodness and generosity of God? Well, I want us to think first about what would make a good action better? What would make it greater, more gracious, more generous? So let's uh, do a thought experiment here. If you think of a situation where, say, you were to donate a kidney, uh, you can live actually pretty fine with one kidney. And there are about 10 million people in the world right now that could use a kidney. And I would think most of us, if we had a family member who was needing a kidney transplant, we'd probably be willing to donate a kidney to them. But what would make that a greater act, a more good and gracious act? Well, if that person was far removed from us, say a stranger, perhaps even an enemy, or what if that person had brought themselves into this state by their own foolishness through illicit drug use? They had uh, just hurt their kidneys so badly that they would need a new one and and were planning on going on in that lifestyle. To give a kidney to a person like that would be not just a good thing that helps them, but it would be gracious to someone that might seem less deserving. And something that could also increase the greatness of that act would be the costliness. Yes, it's costly to give a kidney, but what if it required the kidney of one of your children? A greater cost um, creates a greater act. And if we think of salvation, all these factors increase the greatness of God's salvation for us. It shows God's goodness because salvation meets us at our greatest need. The very kindest thing God could do for you is to save you from slavery to sin. Because sin is the greatest problem you have. Therefore, it's the most good he could possibly do for you is to save you from sin. It's also the most gracious act of God because we were totally undeserving. None of us deserve to be plucked out of that horrible pit of sin we were in. And so it shows us God's grace that he would exercise his salvation and saving work to the undeserving. But it also just, we uh, see God's generosity, that he didn't just pay a little bit. He paid with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without spot or blemish. His own son gave to redeem his people. And so our neediness, our helplessness, our wickedness all serve to highlight the goodness, graciousness, and generous love of God and salvation. And the brightness of this salvation is best contrasted when we understand the darkness and the blackness of our sin. That's where it shines most brightly, that God saved us. That's what he's done for us preeminently. But why? Why would God save us? Let's keep looking at our text. We're told that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So that is to say that this amazing salvation in Christ was not given to us because we had discerned it, 
deserved it, or because we had earned it, but because God chose to be merciful. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. That means that your morality, your spirituality, not even your faith and repentance can obligate God to save you. Nothing you can do can put God in your debt to make him owe you one. God is under no compulsion to save anyone and would rightly pass us all by. We can't qualify ourselves for salvation. And I don't know for those of you who maybe wanted to get into college or if you remember this season of life and you're like, hey, if I get my GPA up high enough, uh, maybe I could qualify for a scholarship and I could maybe pay some of the way, but that would get me all the way. And if I work hard enough, I might make it enough so that the grace will come in and help me the last little bit I need. Not so. We're told in Romans 9.16 that God's salvation does not depend on human will or exertion. It's not how much you want it. It's not how hard you work for it. You can never get one inch closer to qualifying to be a recipient of God's grace. It says it's not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We are saved according to the mercy of God. We're told in Colossians 1.12 that the Father qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Jesus met the qualifications, not us. And this is a significant implication that we're saved by grace alone, received through faith alone. But I think we often miss what's the flip side of this. Okay, this is really important. If we're not saved because of anything in us, then why did God save us? It wasn't because he had to. God saves us because he wants to. God wants to save a people. He doesn't save begrudgingly, but God saves joyfully. And I really think we often miss this. And as I was reflecting on this, I was reminded of of an old youth leader of mine. And I remember this time, um, he was a really generous guy. And there was a few of us going out, and he he offered to pay for someone. He offered to pay for this person in the youth group. And um, the person kind of politely said, oh, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah, you you don't have to. And he just responded um, in this way. He just went, oh, I don't have to? And I was just reminded of that. I was like, oh, this person was totally assuming that he was offering to pay um, out of a sense of duty or obligation that he had to. And just to be reminded that, of course, I don't have to do this. But it's underscoring the point, I want to. I want to pay for your meal. I want to be generous to you. I want to give to you. And often we think that way with God, that we've repented and believed, and therefore God is under some sort of obligation uh, to save us because he has to, and he's kind of regretful that he gets all of us messed up people, but he should probably save us because it's the right thing to do. Not at all. God doesn't, save, God doesn't save begrudgingly or out of any sense of obligation. God saves because he delights in mercy. His name is the God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion. He has mercy because he delights to show mercy to sinners like you and I. And so we're told in Micah 7.18... To praise, saying, who's a God like you? A God who pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of your heritage. 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Our Lord delights to rescue sinners from their sins. And how amazing would it be if we were people who delighted in mercy like our Lord, who knew just how much he had done for us, and we delighted to go and do likewise. As freely as we've received, to freely give. The motivation for God in salvation is found within his own sovereign, merciful will. That's why he saved us. And how did he do this? If, if, If that purpose in salvation is incredible and stunning, just as stunning is the way, the means in which God saved us. Take a look again at our text at the end of verse 5. We're told that he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus our Savior. That is, God saves by giving new spiritual life. We're told he saves here by the washing of regeneration. That means to give new generating power, new life, like a recreation. And by the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Renewal here is this idea of renovation, a complete change for the better. And this is a work of God's Spirit poured out through Christ. You see, Christ didn't just die to save from sins. One of the highest and greatest reasons why Christ died and rose and ascended into heaven was to pour out the Holy Spirit. And this says it's been poured out, not, um, again, not just historically at Pentecost, but the Holy Spirit is poured out every time God delights to save a sinner. And Jesus says remarkably in John 16, 7, that he he says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go, I'm going to send the Comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of the richest, most generous gifts God could ever give to this world. And so God saves through a spiritual work of transformation. That is, he takes out a stony heart, gives a new heart of flesh, one that delights in the law of God, one that loves and looks to Christ. And our salvation then... Our deliverance, it's not one of location, like the Israelites that were literally taken out of Egypt and brought to the promised land. Our salvation is one of transformation, a total new birth, a recreation of ourselves. And therefore, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creation. Wow, what a beautiful reality. And what we're recreated into, we're actually told, we're recreated into the image of Jesus. After knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That's our destiny, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, I'm sure not everyone here, especially the men, perhaps, would not like to admit it, but there is something drawing about, you know, those home renovation shows, where you take a really sort of uh, decrepit place that's maybe falling apart, not very hospitable, looks really terrible, and um, unbeknownst to the family that lives there, they bring in some professionals, spend a bunch of money, and recreate this whole space into just a beautiful, welcoming, amazing space, such that you almost don't recognize it from previously. And the family comes back and they're like, Wow, they're overcome with emotion because this generous gift, this recreation of the space. 
And that's what the Holy Spirit does in the work of the believer. He doesn't swap us out, but he recreates us after the image of Christ to restore what is broken and, and deformed, to recreate us to be a hospitable abode for the Holy Spirit, to outfit us to be the sort of people who have the hearts that the Holy Spirit delights to make his home. And that as we become people who love God, the Father, and God, the Son, we're told that they come and make their home in us. He makes our hearts a hospitable abode for God by recreating us after the image of Christ. And this is a rich, rich gift. So amazing. And to what end? What's the purpose of God in pulling us from the pit, in recreating, renovating us in our souls? We're told in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is, God saves us, God renews us, because he desires to have adopted children who will live with him forever. It's really crazy. This is the will of God to save a people, to provide a rich and eternal inheritance for this new forever family. To eternally have people who will sup with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. To partake of a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And this is God's design for all those he saves. Or as we're told in this text, those who have been justified by his grace. This is a beautiful summary of salvation, to be justified by grace. What to, to be justified means to be displayed as or exhibited as righteous in the sight of God. It is to be declared not guilty. And in this way, by Christ dealing with all our sin, we get declared not guilty in God's sight. And what this means is that in justification, every barrier between us having relationship with our Heavenly Father is removed. Our sin that would block us from the flow of the Father's eternal love to us is taken away. And so the beautiful thing in this justification by grace, in this work of salvation, is that not only are we, in a sense, pulled out of the cell, not only are we acquitted before the judge, but the judge, out of love, adopts us and brings us into his very own family to make us his children, to be the recipients of his love forever and ever, to behold his beautiful glory for all eternity. And so it's fitting that John would say in 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Love lavished upon us to be the children of God. And furthermore, not only are we sons of God, but we're also heirs of God, heirs of this eternal inheritance. Um, wouldn't you just be delighted if you found out Maybe you got a phone call tomorrow and you found out that you had some wealthy relative who you never knew and had no other heirs and that you were the recipient of a massive inheritance. That would be great news. But the truth is that the inheritance God has for the child of God is far greater. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. It's beyond what we can fully grasp or imagine. The glorious realities of the inheritance God gives to his children. 
He's so good. He's so gracious. He's so generous. And so we praise him for this work of salvation like Peter in 1 Peter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. That is, this salvation story is a story that starts in the past, comes into the present, and is culminated at that future glorious time when we're fully freed from every shackle of sin and able to delight with God's people and God's glory forever. This is the story we've been looking at this morning, that we have been saved according to his mercy, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit to be adopted as heirs of eternal life. And there is enough power in these truths to compel and propel a lifetime of godliness. This is the property of all those who believe. We're told in verse 8 that this is being addressed to those who have believed in God. That is simply to say that all these promises of salvation... This saving work, this renewing work, this adopting work, it's grabbed and attained with the hands of faith. Not by the merits of faith, but faith is merely the instrument that reaches out to accept these wonderful promises of salvation. And therefore, today, this very morning, salvation is available to all who will put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To all who receive him by faith to trust Christ to deliver you from that pit that we could never free ourselves from. To trust in Christ is to bow the knee before him, asking him to lead us, to give up living for ourselves, living to do what we want to do, and to live for the one who died for our sakes and rose again. Remembering that great promise in Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is simply those who have believed in God, believed in this saving God, this renewing God, this adopting God. But for those of us who have believed, who have put our faith in Christ, what does this text mean for us? Why would it need to be consistently pounded into our heads and embedded into our hearts. These need to be insisted upon, Paul says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. This gospel message is not just supposed to make us feel good, but it's supposed to compel us on a road of action. And the question is, How does our meditation on these gospel truths, how does it compel us to lives of godliness and devotion? Here's what I would propose. It's because the more we meditate on these truths, set our minds upon them, consciously reflect upon them, the more we find our hearts delighting in them. Our meditation is a meditation unto delight. And it is delight that leads to imitation. We seek to imitate those that we delight in and look up to. We know naturally 
a young children look up to and delight in their parents and want to be like them. And I was thinking of even, even in our hobbies, um, I, I enjoy as a hobby creating music. And I, I've noticed that whatever I'm listening to in a certain season, um, if I've found some music that's really delighting me and I think is just amazing and so creative, um, I find that, that it comes as an influencing power. It's like, I want to create music like that. If this music could make me feel this way, maybe I could make music that makes other people feel the same way. That is, the more, and the more I delight in it, the more I feel inspired by it, the more I feel like I want to imitate it and have others receive of the same. And so as we find delight in the goodness, the grace, the generosity of God and salvation, we want everyone else to experience graciousness, goodness, generosity. And yes, we want them to experience this of God, And so we want to be people that witness to Jesus, that are quick to speak of this saving message. And that's true and good, but this text is actually speaking of our conduct and treatment in the context of our lives in society, our lives before our neighbors. And that not only are we supposed to um, try to attract other people to God's goodness, graciousness, and generosity— But as we reflect the character of God by showing goodness to others, by being gracious to others, by being generous to others, God is glorified when his character qualities are reflected to other people. As his image bearers are blessed, we receive joy. God gets glory and his people are blessed. Every time... We do good to others. We are gracious to others. We reflect the character of God. And so truly as ones who have received so much from God, we really ought to be the most generously loving people on the planet, the most altruistic people on the planet, those who are filled with selfless concern for the well-being of others, people who delight like our Heavenly Father to show mercy, who look for opportunities to be generous, And I want to end with just this story. We remember Jesus in Luke 10. He tells us that parable of the Good Samaritan. That there was a man who came under attack from robbers and was left for dead. And some people of his own people group, religious elites, two religious elites pass him by. And then comes by one who naturally ought to have been his enemy. And this one who should have been his enemy bandaged his wounds, put him in his own mode of transportation, brought him to a place where he could be cared for, and he paid. He paid for the help of this person. And this is a parable that was given to people who were wondering, who are my neighbors? Who are these people that I should be gracious to, show love to, give generously to. Surely this would only be limited to the people of God. Surely it wouldn't be limited to those who are against God, to those who have bad plans for society and are infecting it with malice and hate. They're saying, those people can't be our neighbors. But he shows an enemy showing mercy. And the truth is, uh, symbolically here, we see that we are all like this broken and dying man. And Christ is the one that came to us when we were hostile to him and opposed to him. 
he heals us in Christ. He pays by the price of his own life. He pays for our care. He gives himself that we might be restored, that we might partake of his own flesh and blood. And he ends this parable saying this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We have been recipients of the most astounding and incredible display of mercy. To meet our greatest need, to show us the greatest kindness, to pay the highest price. If we have received such mercy, how could we not go and do likewise? To go and be people who show mercy, who do good in a world that's so needy, who show grace even though people seem undeserving, and who give and live generously even at personal cost. Would we go and do likewise? Let's receive the goodness of God. Meditate on it that we might reflect it in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we can never plumb the depths of your mercy. We see the love of Christ is so wide, so high, so far, long, and deep. We can never plumb its depths. We can never contain it. But Lord, would you fill us with the knowledge of God. Fill us with the fullness of God. That grace and love that passes understanding. Lord, that you would fill us till our cup runs over. And that as we see how good you've been to us, how gracious you've been to us, how generous you've been to us, that we would be people who delight to reflect your mercy in this world. Would you help us in this regard? Help us to practice and to train ourselves to set our minds on the things above. To think of our Lord and Savior Christ. To grow in his grace and knowledge. And that as we behold him, we would become like him. As we receive, Lord, of your mercy, even in this time of worship, that we would reflect your mercy in this world. Would you be glorified in it all for the sake of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.